welcome to the All Things AFib podcast. This is your host, Dr. Armin Kionkui, and I am a practicing cardiothoracic surgeon who specializes in the treatment of atrial fibrillation. Throughout my career, I've been blessed to work side by side with some of the brightest minds in atrial fibrillation treatment, diagnosis, and prevention. And the whole purpose of this podcast is to share those insights with you by giving you a front row seat to intimate conversations with AFib experts from around the world. So turn up the volume, sit back, relax, and enjoy the conversations. Thanks for listening. All right, so this is your host, Dr. Amin Kionkui, bringing you another episode of the All Things AFib podcast. We're going to continue with the theme from last time. No guest again for this episode, but I am going to reveal some research that we've been doing at St. Helena. And this paper is really an oldie but goodie, and I think it's one that uh, has been presented before with Dr. Dunnington on a YouTube recording, but unfortunately we didn't have a very good recording and so we didn't put it on the podcast, but I do want to cover this material. I think it's really important information. The other thing that came up after the last podcast episode was I received a tweet asking from a distinguished surgeon if I could make sure that I clearly provide my disclosures. And so I'm absolutely happy to do that. I do provide my disclosures on my website at allthingsafib.com, but I absolutely am willing to provide those disclosures now as well. So I have been a speaker and a consultant for Atricure since approximately, let's see, it's almost been seven years now. I don't own any stock. I don't have any shares of the company. I don't receive any sort of compensation for products sold or anything like that. I am simply compensated for my time when I provide teachings at courses, when I provide lecture content and things like that. So I'm absolutely happy to disclose that information. I believe in their products very much. And so I'm always here to support them because they are really kind of at the forefront of the development of technologies to treat atrial fibrillation. And even more importantly, what I really believe in with with the company Atricure is that they have made the education of healthcare providers a key component of their mission. And what I mean by that is education, not only of cardiothoracic surgeons who perform the procedures that require their instrumentation, but also of everybody else. So electrophysiologists, advanced practitioners, really everyone in the hospital, making them more aware of atrial fibrillation, making them aware of the most recent treatments that are available, and then obviously the tools that they use to achieve those treatments. So I think that's a very fair disclosure. Um, And with that, I'm happy to jump into this most recent article. So We published this article in the European Journal of Cardiothoracic Surgery in 2021, and it's entitled, A Heart Team Hybrid Approach for Atrial Fibrillation, a Single Center Long-Term Clinical Outcome Cohort Study. And Dr. Gann Dunnington, who's the kind of chief of the program at St. Helena Hospital, where I'm currently at as well, um, he is the primary author, and I was the if you will, senior author um, of this paper. But our other co-authors were uh, 
Carrie Pierce, who's our uh, nurse navigator for our atrial fibrillation program, Susan Eisenberg, who's our electrophysiologist, Liam Bing, who's an electrophysiologist, Peter Chang Singh, who's an electrophysiologist, Daniel Kaiser, who's an electrophysiologist, Shelby Burke, who was uh, instrumental in data collection, Linda Moulton, um, who was our statistician. So let's get into the program or into the paper. And really, the reason for this paper was because Dr. Dunnington, before my arrival, essentially uh, almost about three years ago, had been performing a hybrid approach for the treatment of atrial fibrillation at St. Helena for almost, gosh, must have been about uh, six, seven years before I even got to St. Helena. And he had uh, kind of collected this huge group of patients that Carrie Pierce would continually feed into their AFib database, and they would internally track their outcomes. But what was missing was really that landmark paper that would reveal to the community, to the AFib community, how well an AFib program, a hybrid AFib program was working for the treatment of atrial fibrillation. And to take a step back, what the hybrid AFib program at St. Helena has been over the years really is a team approach to the treatment of atrial fibrillation, not unlike what's used in Europe, which is why I think this paper was welcomed in the European Journal of Cardiothoracic Surgery. And so what I mean by that is that it's a stepwise approach to the treatment of complex atrial fibrillation, whereby in most instances, the surgeon, Dr. Dunnington, would first perform an epicardio, an epicardiothoracoscopic or VATS surgical ablation and management of the left atrial appendage. And that would be followed, in most instances, a second stage endocardial um, catheter ablation that addressed any gaps in the posterior wall, any gaps in the pulmonary veins, as well as a completion of a cable tricuspid isthmus line, and in most certain, in most circumstances, also a mitral isthmus line. So, I think the first thing we should really dive into is kind of how this program came to be. And so Dr. Dunnington spoke about this on the YouTube video, but I think it, it, it merits uh, repeating here on the podcast, which is St. Helena Hospital is located in a town of approximately 6,000 people. And when you look at this study, what we tried to do is capture really the programmatic growth and opportunity for those people who are interested in atrial fibrillation treatment. What I mean by that is over the time period of the study, so if you look at our time period, it was from March 13th through July 2019. So you're talking about six years. So March 2013 to July 2019, about six years, there were 730 patients that were referred to the AFib heart team. So you're talking to over 100 patients a year in a town of 6,000 people. So how do you make sense of that? Well, if you talk to Dr. Dunnington, you talk to Dr. Eisenberg, Dr. Peter Chang Singh, 
and the other authors of the paper, what you realize is they really have a grassroots effort of making patients aware of the most contemporary treatments for the treatment of HFib or contemporary methods for the treatment of atrial fibrillation. And so they do a lot of direct-to-patient marketing, if you will, speaking at events put on by St. Helena Hospital to attract those people who either have a diagnosis of atrial fibrillation or are interested in atrial fibrillation. And through those direct-to-patient educational seminars, they attract a lot of patients not only from within St. Helena, the town itself, but the surrounding Napa County, Sonoma County, and all kind of other counties throughout Northern California. Also, it's important to note that from kind of word of mouth, the program at St. Helena attracts uh, a significant portion of patients from out of state. And so approximately 17, 15 to 17 states any given year refer into St. Helena for this kind of highly specialized treatment of atrial fibrillation. So getting back to the paper, again, 730 patients were referred to the heart team. Of those, 180 patients actually had other concomitant cardiac surgical diagnoses that warranted an open coxmase surgery with either a cabbage or a mitral or some other um, cardiac disease that required open heart surgery. So ultimately, 550 patients were candidates for the hybrid approach. And these were patients who had standalone atrial fibrillation. It's important to uh, mention that. Five patients were actually enrolled in the DEEP trial, which at the time was Atricure's ongoing hybrid trial. This was before conversion, obviously. And so now there was a, a patient cohort of 455 hybrid patients who completed both stages of the hybrid approach that were analyzed in the paper. So you may say, okay, well, what happened to those 90 patients? You went from 555 went into the deep trial. Well, 90 patients actually chose not to undergo both stages of the hybrid procedure. So those were excluded from the analysis. We strictly wanted to look at how patients did if they completed both stages of the hybrid approach. But we were very also very transparent and honest in the data in that any patient who had a complication during the thoracoscopic or VATS approach, we actually counted that complication. So we wanted to make sure it was a complete reveal of not only the results of a two-stage approach, but also a complete reveal on any sort of complications that happened during the first stage that, that prevented patients from going on to a second stage. So getting in the weeds a little bit, of those 455 patients, 45 of the patients actually underwent a single admission or single stage, if you will, um, hybrid approach, which means that 45, 45 patients underwent their epicardial surgical ablation and then within the same hospitalization, they underwent the second stage endocardial ablation. Those patients were called essentially a single stage. So that made up a small number of patients, only about 10%, 45 patients. The remainder, the 410 patients remaining, actually underwent a two-stage approach. And that two-stage approach at St. Helena means the patient undergoes a 
epicardial, surgical ablation and management of the left atrial appendage, followed by an endocardial catheter ablation at least six weeks later. So we really try to make sure that the patients have a six-week delay between the two stages to optimize the cardiac tissue for endocardial mapping and catheter ablation. Now you may ask, okay, well, why, why did you change? Why was there a switch from a single admission to a two-stage? The reason why they changed at St. Alina was simply because one patient suffered a stroke uh, during those first 45 patients. And there was an inability to figure out whether that stroke occurred after the first epicardiosurgical ablation or if that stroke occurred during the endocardiocatheter ablation. And so that was really important feedback because ultimately, as you'll see in the paper, the results are essentially the same, but there is an importance for the one doing the intervention to have the feedback uh, regarding any sort of complication. So from that point moving forward, um, the procedure has moved to a two-stage procedure separated by six weeks, and that's currently how it stands now. So it goes without saying that the uh, surgical procedure has changed over time. By no means is this a static kind of representation of how those uh, 455 patients did. It's important to note that the instrumentation has changed, the techniques have changed, but we did want to try to represent the overall group in kind of a real-time um, representation of the effectiveness and the safety of a two-stage hybrid approach. So just to recap uh, what that means. So the first stage is a thoracoscopic approach. At St. Helena, we use a, a bilateral VATS, four port access, two 12 ports, two five ports. We start on the left with single lung ventilation. The patient is intubated, um, central line in place. The cardiopulmonary bypass machine is in the room um, just in case. And uh, we start with left-sided access. The pericardium is open posterior to the phrenic. It's extended down past the coronary sinus. The ligament of Marshall is divided with electrocautery, or the vein of Marshall, if you will. Uh, the left pulmonary veins are then encircled with a bipolar clamp, and successive ablations of the bipolar clamp are applied in order to isolate uh, the left pulmonary veins. If the patient has had prior endocardial catheter ablation, we also test uh, those veins for entrance block um, before we perform any sort of ablation in order to note that as feedback as part of dialogue with our EP colleagues. After we've confirmed uh, entrance block of the left pulmonary veins, we then, uh, over time, developed multiple ways to try to obtain isolation of the posterior wall or the left atrial box. So one method by which that was attempted was via a device that's called the fusion multipolar uh, suction ablation device. And essentially what this was, was a single, if you will, ablation device that you could wrap around the posterior wall of the left atrium. And it had a sequence of both unipolar and bipolar 
energy, radio frequency energy that was applied to the posterior wall in a circumferential fashion um, with the aid of suction. And this would essentially create a continuous left atrial posterior uh, box that would connect to the pulmonary veins. And this was partially performed from the left side and then uh, partially performed from the right side when we um, accessed via our right VATS. So that was one uh, opportunity to create the posterior wall and 230 patients underwent this approach with the Cobra Fusion device. The remaining 180 patients underwent kind of the, the more uh, recent or latest iteration, which was the application of a unipolar uh, radio frequency device applied uh, simultaneously with uh, each hand to both the roof and the floor in order to, if, if you will, paint a roof line and a floor line, uh, creating interconnecting lines between the right and left superior vein uh, and the right and left inferior pulmonary vein. And that's really the more contemporary method that we use now. And in that uh, process, essentially the most recent iteration is that we use these uh, MLP devices or what they're called or multilinear pens. Um, and these are applied to the roof and floor regions and they're applied continuously for 10 minutes. And for the electrophysiologists who are listening, uh, the wattage varies quite a bit. So the algorithm within the Atricure uh, MLP uh, device really is an impedance algorithm. So the power fluctuates and it can really fluctuate anywhere from 20 watts as a maximum down to about two and a half watts. So it really just depends on the feedback uh, to the device from the tissue but it is by no means a high power, low duration sort of device. This is more like, as Dr. Dunnington likes to say, uh, an easy bake oven. It's kind of a low power, long burn, uh, 10 minutes continuous from the left side. And essentially what that allows us to do is to create a partial roof and partial uh, floor extending from the uh, left pulmonary veins across the transverse and oblique sinuses to their partner veins uh, on the other side. In addition to the roof and floor and the left pulmonary vein, the ligament of Marshall, there were uh, several other lesions that we would perform. So one would be a, a line across the uh, uh, Coumadin ridge. So this would again be extended using an MLP device from the base of the left atrial appendage onto the left superior pulmonary vein. And then also we performed um, an epicardiomitral isthmus line. And so early on this was performed uh, by extending again radio frequency energy from our floor line extending onto the coronary sinus, actually using the radio frequency MLP device in order to create a linear ablation from the floor line uh, onto the coronary sinus, crossing that mitral isthmus area epicardially which we would then fully expect our electrophysiologist to complete endocardially. So that would be the work that would be completed on the left side. That would take approximately 30 to 45 minutes in total. We would then switch to the right side of the patient. So single lung ventilation on the left, allowing us to collapse the right lung. Then we would make an anterior pericardotomy uh, above the phrenic nerve on the right side. 
we would develop the oblique and transverse sinuses in order to uh, create access uh, to those partial roof and floor lines that we created from the left. We would encircle the right pulmonary veins, again, if we uh, felt it was uh, necessary to test the veins from prior catheter ablation, we would. We would then encircle the right pulmonary veins, again, apply the bipolar clamp, isolate the right pulmonary veins, and then use those MLP devices again for approximately 10 minutes to extend the roof and floor lines over to the right pulmonary veins. We would then test the posterior left atrium for entrance block, and if entrance block was confirmed, uh, we would then uh, cardiovert the patient and then try exit block. One thing I left behind, uh, excuse me, on the left side is we would also manage the left atrial appendage from the left side, and that would be the introduction of an atrial clip, as I mentioned on the last podcast. So that would be uh, guided under transesophageal echo. The atrial clip would be placed at the base of the left atrial appendage, and then we'd move over to the right side, as I just mentioned. So that would really complete the ablation. On the right side, uh, the ablation only takes somewhere between 20 to 25 minutes. Then the right pericardium is closed with a stitch in order to try to prevent any herniation uh, of the right atrium. On the left side, as long as your incision runs posterior enough and away from the apex of the heart, there's minimal risk of herniation on the left side. So we do not typically close the pericardium on the left side. On each side, 19 French drains are placed, and the patients would typically uh, stay in-house two nights before being discharged. And then following up six weeks later, they would undergo the second stage. So second stage was performed by our electrophysiologists. They would uh, undergo standard endocardial mapping. Uh, like I said, any gaps in the pulmonary veins or left atrial box would be um, completed with radiofrequency energy in most cases. Uh, most recently, again, uh, some of this has been augmented with cryotherapy. And then um, as far as right-sided atrial lesions, the uh, electrophysiologist would then perform a cable-tricuspid isthmus line. Um, we essentially have moved away from creating any sort of right-sided epicardial lesions. We uh, really... Uh, depend on our electrophysiologist to address any right-sided lesions uh, at the time of endocardial mapping and catheter ablation. So moving on, uh, if you want to see a depiction of that, uh, it's in figure two is what I just described. We also uh, tend to address the ganglion and plexi that exist uh, much of the time in the uh, intraatrial groove. Often these are um, ablated during the uh, isolation of the bilateral pulmonary veins, and they can also, areas of ganglion plexi can also be ablated using the MLP uh, devices. So that's a lot about the procedure. Let's get into um, the actual outcomes of the patients, if you will. So uh, we'll skip ahead to table one in our, in our figure. So just to give you some demographics about these patients, on average, they were 67 years old. Most were male. Uh, some had uh, New York heart classification failure. Uh, most had a BMI of about 30, which is what you would expect. Um, the majority of these patients, 
excuse me, 98% of these patients were non-paroxysmal. So only 2% of patients were paroxysmal, 43% of patients were persistent, and the largest group, 55% of these patients had long-standing persistent atrial fibrillation. At the time of their surgical ablation, the average time in AFib was six years. The average size of the left atrium was 4.8 centimeters. 30% of these patients had a, cath a prior catheter ablation and 11% had um, prior pacemakers. 15% had prior strokes or TIAs and 5% had prior bleeding events. Average CHADS VAS score was 2.6. Average HAS blood score was 2.7. And there are some other details uh, here in table one. So let's go ahead and get into some of the analysis. So the first um, analysis that I mentioned earlier that I wanna make you aware of is we did look to see if there was a difference in those patients who underwent a single stage or same admission um, hybrid approach versus those patients who underwent a staged uh, hybrid approach. And ultimately, uh, there was no difference, no statistically significant difference in freedom from atrial fibrillation. And we actually used HRS uh, definitions in this paper, so the standard less than 30 seconds off of uh, antiarrhythmics. Um, and so there was no difference if whether the patient had a single kind of admission hybrid approach or whether they had a two admission hybrid approach separated typically by six weeks. So that's kind of the first analysis we did. The second analysis we did was with technique. So we looked at uh, those patients who underwent a hybrid with the Cobra fusion device that I had mentioned, that multipolar suction device versus those patients who did not. And again, there was no statistical significant difference between the two groups. And so in our hands anyways at St. Helena, both methods were um, as efficacious. And we'll get into some of those numbers here shortly. So the overall success of the program, if you looked at our one month uh, HRS success, it was 81%. And if you looked at the use of antiarrhythmics at one year, it was 87%. So again, one year HRX, HRS success and predominantly a longstanding persistent population was 81% at one year, 76% at two years, and 66% at three years. Um, using antiarrhythmics, 87% at one year, 81% at two years and 72% at three years. Moving on to complications. So in table two, again, we do list all of our complications and these were these included in complications um, in patients who had the first stage but had a complication and therefore chose not to undergo the second stage. And so actually these are out of 461 patients. So six additional patients were included here and our overall complication rate was 6.1%. And this included a 1.3% uh, mortality or six deaths, a 1.5% permanent pacemaker placement, a 0.8% operative re-explorations, 
a 0.4% stroke, so only two strokes in 455 patients, um, a 0.4% conversion to either thoracotomy or sternotomy, and then we had one phrenic nerve palsy out of 455 patients. And so that's in table two. You can see our, uh, our complication rate. Our over, overall um, major complication rate really you can see is really kind of more in that 3% range between death and stroke and operative re-expiration. The other three were uh, permanent placemaker, uh, phrenic nerve palsy, and need for reintubation. So um, we had a 98% successful left atrial appendage ligation defined by a residual pouch of less than one centimeter and no device-related thrombus, as mentioned um, on the other uh, trial that we discussed on the last episode. So what does this all mean? So that means in experienced hands over a six-year period, you could achieve a high rate, greater than 80% success rate, HRS success rate, using a hybrid approach in a predominantly non-paroxysmal patient population. This one critique of this hybrid approach, which includes the totally thoracoscopic epicardial ablation followed by endocardial uh, catheter ablation is that it is difficult to learn, that it is technically complex. And so I want to speak to that for a second. So I talked about our 6% complication rate. Really, you're talking about it, uh, probably about a 2 to 3% major complication rate. And in reality, this was our first 455 patients. Since then, essentially another 350 to 400 patients has been performed. And in that population, we've only had two deaths. So what you're really looking at, almost 1,000 patients now is about a, a almost a one to one and a half percent mortality. Um, so I think that is that is an honest uh, reveal of the technical complexity of this uh, this procedure in, in the patient population. Um, I think as with any program, you do go through some growing pains and you learn which patients uh, you can offer this operation for in which you cannot or you should not. Uh, early on in the experience, uh, this uh, operation or this um, combination of operation and procedure was uh, presented to patients and offered to patients who often at this point would not have undergone open heart surgery uh, or you know mini thoracotomy surgery. So we operated on patients with end-stage pulmonary disease on home oxygen. We operated on patients with end-stage uh, liver disease with cirrhosis. And really we've learned since that time that uh, not only are these patients not ideal for even an AFib operation, but these patients uh, moving forward, uh, this uh, opportunity to treat their AFib should really uh, not be offered just because they have such a high risk of morbidity and mortality not unlike when we take these patients for open heart surgery. So in those circumstances with really end-stage pulmonary and end-stage liver disease, uh, these patients are either best treated with medical management 
or with a less invasive endocardial catheter ablation. Again, we also moved away from the fusion device. Um, the kind of anecdotal concern with the Cobra fusion device was even though there was no statistical significant difference in the rate of postoperative TIA or stroke uh, when we compared the Cobra fusion device against those who did not have the Cobra fusion device, there was kind of an anecdotal trend in an increase in stroke. So it was a pretty easy decision to then stop uh, using the fusion device and move forward with the bilateral MLP um, creation of the roof and floor without suction. I think what's important to note also in this experience is there were no um, atrial esophageal uh, fistulas uh, presented as complications, and so that's an important point as well. This paper in the spectrum of the other kind of hybrid approaches out there. So as we've talked about on this podcast before, the other kind of even more recent um, iteration of a hybrid approach is the convergent uh, approach that came from the Converge trial. So as many of you know, this is a sub-xiphoid approach with catheter ablation of the epicardial uh, posterior wall followed by a second stage endocardial catheter ablation. These two procedures really are kind of in different um, spaces when it comes to technical complexity and uh, really with results as well. So in our experience, our totally thoroscopic approach really offers probably somewhere between uh, 15 to 20% improvement in patient response with HRS definition uh, compared to the convergent uh, approach, um, especially when you consider the uh, advantage of managing the left atrial appendage when you're performing a bilateral BATS approach. That's not to say that those surgeons who perform a convergent with left atrial appendage management um, are not offering an excellent approach. I think they are. I think ultimately, the safest approach for the surgeon is probably the best approach in these complex AFib patients. Um, so whether that be the totally thoroscopic component of a hybrid team approach, as we offer here at St. Helena, or whether it's a convergent sub approach, I think ultimately, number one, the left atrial appendage should always be managed. I think that's key. And then number two, it's really... Um, making your way through the learning curve of either approach so that you hit the patient's safety first. I think as a partnership with our electrophysiologist, another key component is talking about what lesions are most appropriate for the surgeon to attempt. So I talked about the mitral isthmus line earlier. So uh, just to recap, you know, we do or we used to perform a posterior lateral a mitral isthmus line epicardial that was completed endocardially, and it was uh, never complete at the mapping of the of the first stage at the second stage. Um, to say that an epicardial ablation of the mitral isthmus line is not possible, but it can be completed endocardially, 
So it's important to know that when you're talking to your electrophysiologist, when you're talking to their patient, because we had about a 10% atrial flutter, perimitral flutter rate between the two procedures. And so it's important for the patient to know that it's important programmatically to acknowledge that and to learn how to mitigate that kind of moving forward. And so we've moved that mitralis line at times to an anterior line um, running from the right superior pulmonary vein to the uh, aortic root, if you will, that could be completed endocardially then. So that it, it kind of begs the point of um, having a conversation with your electrophysiologist is probably the most important part of a hybrid procedure so that you can work together to figure out which lesions um, you feel that you can accomplish at each stage and in total trying to uh, mimic the Cox Maze 3 or Cox Maze 4 uh, lesion set. So I think I'll leave it there. Um, thank you so much for listening to another episode. I know we got a bit in the weeds um, on this uh, episode with regards to techniques, but I do feel like this is a worthwhile paper that we um, published at St. Helena that really offers a real-world um, presentation or expression of what a hybrid team approach for complex atrial fibrillation can be. So again, thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode and stay regular, my friends. All right. Well, thanks again for listening to another episode of the All Things AFib podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Remember, you can catch more content at our website, allthingsafib.com and check out our Twitter feed at allthingsafib. So thanks again for listening. And until next time, stay regular, my friends. And now time for the obligatory disclaimer. All content on allthingsafib.com, including podcasts and blog conversations, are meant for informational purposes only and is not intended as medical care and no doctor-patient relationship is formed. If you have a medical condition, you should seek out a medical professional for consultation. Any use of information from allthingsafib.com or its associated content is at the user's own risk.